0: Well, good morning, and thank you for this invitation to be with you, even though I, we can't be together personally, and I trust that uh, the Lord is going to bless our time together and that we will uh, all, all enjoy the word of the Lord together. Can you all see the, the PowerPoint screen that is up? All right, good. Um, uh, oh, we're going to be working this morning from the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2, and this morning, I'd like to, uh, it's the Christmas season, we're into December, so this morning, I'd like to tell you the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, and um, I'm going to guess that it's a story that you've never heard before. The account of the birth of Jesus is about how God sent his son into the world at a particular time and a particular place for the purpose of bringing grace and salvation to the world, as we've talked about this morning. We read, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and that there is no limit to this grace. There is no limit to this salvation. Jesus Christ would die for all, and it is the will of God that none perish, but that all would come to repentance. And the Christmas story is filled with uh, many familiar images, the uh, manger scene, the star, the shepherds in the field. The Christmas story is filled with many familiar characters of Mary and Joseph and the wise men from afar and the guy who said that there was no room at the inn. And the Christmas story has a familiar setting in the small town of Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, tiny among the cities of Judah, where the prophet Micah said that the Messiah would be born, the one who would be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. But this morning, we're going to talk about that first Christmas using a different image and talking about different characters and of events that happened in different places. Because there's a very important part of this story, a part that is critical for all those famous characters and all all those famous events to all come together at the right place at the right time to bring the salvation that would be accomplished for Israel and for the world. And uh, maybe it's a story that you've never heard before. Now, perhaps I'm wrong but let's see. We're going to be working this morning from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and because it is so famous and so iconic, I put it up here in the King James. And I just want to check again that you can all see Luke chapter 2 up in front of you. We read that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went, also went up from Galilee out of, the city of Naz, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 2 is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, one of the most famous texts in all the world. And I expect everyone here, everyone with us has heard of it, regardless of whether you, like me, have gone to church all your life and consider these words sacred, or if you haven't come to church in a long time and look at these words skeptically. But today I wanna go off exploring with you to start the Christmas story where Luke starts it, and to talk with you about the taxes and about this decree from Caesar Augustus, and to talk about this guy Quirinius, who was governing Syria. And by the way, you see Quirinius's name spelled differently in different translations. I'm gonna standardize it in the slides today for our discussion. Now, maybe this is just proof of how pedestrian, how limited and how pathetically utilitarian my mind really is. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be a Christmas message. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, A babe in a manger, a star in the sky, shepherds in the field, angels on their way, and this being 2020, all of us could use some words of comfort and good cheer. And with all that, what this out-of-town lawyer finds interesting are the taxes. I outlined this idea to my wife, Vicki, who said to me, Tom, this sounds really boring. Uh, Nobody likes to talk about taxes, nobody. I mean, how many Christmas carols do you know where where, where they sing about the taxes? How many Christmas cards have you ever gotten with a picture of Quirinius? But Luke starts his story with the taxes. Matthew starts the story of Christmas with a dream. John starts it with taxes, or John starts it in heaven. Luke starts it with taxes. And Luke mentions the taxes, or maybe you see it in your Bible as a census or a registration. Luke mentions it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 5. So it seems like it was important to him. Why is that? And why is this sometimes translated taxes and sometimes translated census? Why mention Porinius, who's up in Syria? Why does Joseph have to go to Bethlehem? Why should we care or talk about this at all? I'm gonna try to say this right, and forgive me if I miss the mark, but it seems to me that we often talk about Christmas in one of two ways. We talk about it, and rightly so, as a wonderful, comforting, familiar, happy story. We look at it with, wide-eyed, with you know, wide-eyed wonder of children, and it's good to do so for so it is. Or we talk about an eternal and doctrinal perspective, explaining the prophecies and tracing the genealogy, and it's good to do that also. But in all of that, we can lose the actual people and lose the actual events. And at least for me, understanding this part of the account helps me connect with the people, not just with Mary and Joseph, but with those of the times, and to lift them out of the stories and to relate to them as real people. The world thinks that the babe in the manger is a feel good story that we like to tell our children and like to tell ourselves, but it is a real event. And tracking it down in antiquity reinforces the sense of reality that this is not just religious myth but that our God who knows the end from the beginning worked through the decisions of men who had no idea of the eternal significance of their action to bring it all together in a particular time, in a particular place, just as he said that he would. If you're with us today and you believe and are saved. I trust you're going to find our discussion a reinforcement of your faith. If you're with us and you're not sure, or maybe you want to believe, but you don't, but you don't want to have to check your intellect at the door. I hope to appeal to your mind and not just your heart. And if you're with us today and you're skeptical, I hope that you're going to find our discussion intelligent and give you the occasion to think through this again. So let's take a fresh look at these famous verses together, see what we can learn about the scriptures, about the gospel, and to watch our God work. So part one is Luke and an orderly account. The gospel of Luke begins thusly, inasmuch as many has taken in hand in order to set a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The Gospel of Luke is different from the other three in two important ways. First, Luke is a Gentile. He's a Greek. All the other New Testament writers are Jews. Matthew, Mark, John, Peter, Paul, James, Jude. They're all Jews. Luke is Greek. He's not from Judea. He's not from Galilee. It seems he's from Macedonia. He's certainly from one of the Roman provinces. He's very well-educated. We read that he's a physician. His Greek is very good and very polished. He is very well-traveled. He has as his target audience the Hellenistic world, the intellectual Greek-speaking world. His work is addressed to and probably commissioned by Theophilus. And so one, Luke is Greek writing to a Hellenistic world. And secondly, Luke is unique among the gospel writers because he has no firsthand knowledge of Jesus Christ never met Jesus, never heard him, never saw a miracle, never uh, heard a parable. The other gospel writers, they all knew Jesus. Matthew and John were apostles. Mark was a young man who tagged along in Gethsemane and became very close to Peter. But Luke is different. Luke is coming at this, not as a participant, but as a historian. His gospel is the first of a two volume history that is followed by the book of Acts. His goal is to write an orderly account of the certainty of these events. And Luke is an excellent historian. He is praised by Christian and secular historians alike for the precision and the detail of his writings. The great archeologist, Sir William Ramsey, placed him in the first rank of historians because archeological finds again and again confirmed the accuracy of his history. And Luke is writing very close to the events that happened. His sources are eyewitnesses. His readers had lived through many of these events. Uh, that, that are mentioned in these accounts. People lionize the first century histories written by Josephus, and rightly so. I keep Josephus within easy reach at my desk. But Luke is decades closer to the subject than was Josephus. He had studied it out and attained what he said was a perfect understanding. He excels at placing people in the context of the time and place. He is constantly putting the events of the gospel in the context of the wider historical record. And he's going to tell this very localized story, the story of Jesus Christ that will happen within a geography of less than a 100 miles. He's going to tell that story against the backdrop of a wider world as big a stage as the Roman Empire. And you can see that right from the beginning of his telling of the Christmas story. Compare Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's on your left, Luke's on your right. Matthew was written to Jews. Wise men came to Herod in Jerusalem asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Luke is universal. Angels light up the sky with good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Matthew writes about the birth of a king. Luke writes about the birth of a savior. Matthew sets his story against the backdrop of the Hebrew prophets, citing Isaiah and, and Micah and Hosea, re- writers that his uh, Jewish readers would immediately recognize. Luke sets his story within the history of the Roman world, citing famous people, Readings, not in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem or Nazareth, but in Rome, where the emperor that everybody had heard of, and with a decree that everybody of age would remember or know about. And so children throughout the centuries at Christmas pageants without number learned to recite the words, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Part two, Augustus and the freedom of citizenship. Now Augustus Caesar was the first Roman emperor. He was the nephew, he was the adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar, and he was known that as Octavius. After the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, he became part of what was called the Second Triumvirate, which ruled ruled the Roman world. In 31 BC, he defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, and he consolidated power. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate gave him the title of uh, of Augustus and called him emperor. He called himself the first citizen of of the state. Augustus Caesar had a genius for administration. He was good enough as a general. He was rather boring as a public speaker, but he was a great administrator and a great organizer, maybe without peer in all of history. His ideas for how government should operate remain with us today. And now he's set about to organize all the world, meaning the Roman world. The reference in Luke and other writings is political and not global. Augustus had the idea that government should do what we call infrastructure. And so he planned and built the famous network of Roman roads. He established the first courier service, what we call the post office, was invented by Augustus. He would do a much better job running it than we are today. He established the idea of a standing army so that it would not be individual generals raising armies as they will. He created the first police force in history. He created the first fire department in history. He vastly expanded the borders of the empire. He rebuilt Rome itself. He liked to say that he found Rome a city of bricks and he left it a city of marble. He established the Pax Romana, peace throughout the empire, commerce boomed, and generally speaking, he built an administrative system so strong that it stood for centuries. And another thing that he did was that he overhauled the tax code. The Roman Empire was huge, and to hold it together required a huge administration, and to finance it required a huge revenue. And to raise that revenue, Augustus had an idea that Rome would not directly tax individuals. There'd be no personal income tax file that you you had to file. There'd be no money that you sent directly to Rome. Joseph did not hand over any tax money in Bethlehem. Rather, assessments would be levied against each province or each region of the empire. It would be as if, The federal government in Washington didn't tax you directly, but instead determined that the state of New Jersey had some set amount it had to pay, as did the state of Pennsylvania and New York and Maryland, and each different state had a different assessment that it had to collect and it had to pay. The amount of that assessment was based almost entirely on population. Now, there was a small wealth tax that was based on real estate. That was about a 1% assessment. In essence, the Roman Empire financed itself by requiring an annual payment of each, from each province and based that assessment on its population. That meant that from time to time, whenever the emperor determined, there would be a census to get an update of a tax assessment. And under Augustus, it happened every 12 to 14 years. That's why you see in the older translations that Augustus's decree was for taxation, and in other translations that the decree was for a census. The purpose of the decree was to tax. The means to set that tax was a headcount. When Augustus issued his decree that all the world would be taxed, it didn't mean that on some particular day, everybody had to go and register. The technology of the day could not accomplish such a thing. It's not like Augustus could send out a Twitter and could tweet out announcing that there would be a new census. When his decree went out, uh, it, it had to be hand carried throughout the empire. The provinces had to get themselves organized. They had to get geared up for the effort. They had to spread the word. They had to set up places for registration. And you couldn't just fill out a registration online. You had to personally go and register. And because the assessment of a province was based on the population of the province, you had to register in the province you were from. Records for such tax registration survive to this day. And they're all over the empire. These are two from Egypt, in different years. The announcement by the uh, the, the, the governor of the province, uh, as as he starts get as the province starts gearing up, from the Lord Prefect, the governor of Egypt, Gaius Vibius Maximus, being that the time has come for the house to house census. It is mandatory that all men who are living outside their districts return to their own homelands that the census may be carried out. Or this one, because of the approaching census, it is necessary that all residing for any cause away from their homes should at once prepare to return to their own governments in order that they may complete the family registration of the enrollment. Sounds a lot like Luke 2. We even have the uh, forms that people would fill out when they register. This is from a census in 23 AD or CE, as you prefer. I, Thermariaean, together with Apollyon, my governor, pledge an oath to Tiberius Claudius Caesar that the preceding document gives an accurate account of those returning who live in my household and that there is no one else living with me Neither a foreigner, nor an Alexandrian, nor a freeman, nor a Roman citizen, nor an Egyptian, if I am telling the truth, may it be well with me, but falsely the reverse in the ninth year of the reign of Tiberius Claudius Augustus Germanicus Emperor. I mean, today you sign your tax return at the bottom and you certify that under penalty of perjury that it's true and correct. They sort of did the same thing back then. Now, let me suggest something and see if you agree. If I was writing the history of one Jesus of Nazareth and wanted to embellish the story, and I was going to make some of it up, or I was just going to sort of report legends that are being widely circulated, like, for example, a legend of a miraculous birth. Well, I would cite as those legends and embellishments in some remote place where there would be no witnesses that anybody could find and certainly no records that could debunk it. Luke opens this up talking about two of the most famous people in the world, Augustus and, as we're going to see, Quirinius. And everything that these guys did made big news. And two... Luke is talking about an event that people who were alive could still remember. They could remember this census and this decree. And three, he has cited this in a place where his story could easily be verified just by checking the records that had been meticulously kept by what was maybe the most organized and efficient bureaucracy the world has ever seen. All of us are separated from these events by centuries of time. And they may sound like some feel good, quaint story written for effect, but Luke is not writing to us. He's writing for us, but he's not writing to us. He's writing to his own generation by whom this account could easily be confirmed or easily debunked. The taxes give this account big time credibility To those reading this, when it was written, they sounded exactly like what Luke said that it was, an orderly factual account in the context of recent history by by everybody, so that everybody would know with certainty that he knew what he was talking about. One more thing before we leave this section. Under Augustus, Roman citizens paid no taxes. Now that idea predated him, but he incorporated it into the tax code. Everything was financed by the provinces. If you're a Roman citizen living anywhere, you paid no taxes, which is pretty good if you're a citizen. I mean, imagine if that was the case today and you paid no taxes. No federal income taxes, no state income taxes, no social security taxes, no property taxes, no sales taxes. You know, you maybe had a card you show at the store something you put in online, It's tax-exempt citizen. No tolls on the road. You got a sticker on your windshield. When you go through, the sign just says, have a nice day, citizen. That would be uh, pretty good. How much do you think that would be worth? What would you pay today to be tax-free for the rest of your life? How much would you pay today for your children to be tax-free for all their lives? This is from Acts chapter 22, also written by Luke. The apostle Paul was talking to a Roman commander who has found out that Paul's a citizen. The commander is also a citizen and he says, with a large sum, I obtained my citizenship. Yeah, I expect you did. You bought citizenship. Citizenship was a capital investment. Below, you'll see this in the King James. And there, as often, you will see the word the word in Greek for citizen translated freedom. I obtained this freedom. A Roman citizen could go where he wanted, live in liberty, and be free of taxes. It cost the commander a lot of money to buy that freedom of citizenship. But it had cost Paul nothing. He had been born a citizen. And that is the image that Paul used when he wrote to the Philippians, Philippi being a Roman colony. For our citizenship is in heaven by which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizens are free. The gospel of Jesus Christ is freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom from guilt, freedom from the judgment of God, freedom from the fear of death to walk in newness of life. And how much does this freedom cost you? Nothing. You were born into it. Jesus Christ paid the price. To give it to you. Part three publicans and zealots. Now, as Augustus designed it, the taxes would come from the provinces and the client kingdoms within the empire. And each province would have an assessment. The assessment was based on population. And what Once it was determined how much a province had to pay, it was up to the province to raise the money. And as Augustus ran things, the province raised that money at an auction and literally auctioned off the right to collect taxes in the province. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, the government is gonna privatize something? It's gonna privatize a program. That means the government is going to contract out to a private company to accomplish some government program and the company would make a profit with the idea that the company, the private company, can run it more efficiently than the government. Well, under Augustus, Rome literally privatized the IRS. So suppose Rome imposed a tax burden on the state of Maryland of let's say, 1 million sesterces that's the unit of that, that, that that's the unit of money 1 million sesterces on new jersey for the year and an app sets the date for an auction and the bidders show up big money guys and i mean really big money bidding starts at 1 million sesterces a year 1.1 1.2 1.3 million up it goes the winning bidder has to pay that much to the province every year, the province remits the required amount to Rome and keeps the difference to run its own government. These bidders, believe it or not, were called tax farmers. Some farmers grow wheat, some farmers grow grain, some farmers grow corn. These guys grow taxes, or in the language of the day, the publicani. Recognize the word. Notice that it's not a Judean word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's Latin, Roman, publicani. Sounds very Italian. Anyway, the publicani, the publicans, then set the local tax rate at whatever they wanted and went about collecting the money, all the money they could. They could subcontract it out. They could sell out individual territories. They were empowered by the authority of the province. They employed their own private group of what I will politely call revenue agents. And the Roman cohorts were there to back them if needed. And it worked great. Rome got its money from the province on time, no hassle, single single payer system. So it didn't need some big IRS agency to run. The province got its money from the Publicani on time, no hassle and kept the profit from the auction. The Publicani Squeeze the populace for everything they could get and keep whatever they collected above their bid. Who could complain about that? And all this was based on figuring out how many people there were in each province. And from time to time, when he deemed it appropriate, Augustus ordered a new census so that taxes could be raised and reset. As I said, it happened every 12 to 14 years. So just imagine, You've gotten home one evening after work, you're sitting down to watch the evening news, and there's a press conference, and there's the emperor announcing a new tax census. Is this good news to you? Are you happy to hear it? Oh, no, you're not. The new census means new taxes. That means a new tax auction, that means a higher provincial taxes, higher bids, more pressure on the publicani to come up with the money, more squeezing in the populace, more money you're gonna have to pay. So how do you think people responded when a new tax census was announced? Yeah, right, protest in the streets. This is from Acts chapter five. The scenes in the Sanhedrin and Jerusalem where the religious leadership is trying to decide what to do with the apostles who are preaching Christ and the resurrection, and the city's all ablaze with it. And a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who's a respected teacher of the law, stands to speak. You probably know this. Look at it again. The Bible always rewards attention to detail. Acts chapter five. Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Judas of Galilee led a people's tax revolt, a violent revolt. Public uprising triggered by the tax census. It happened in six six A.D. Josephus wrote of him. There was one Judas, a Galilean, who, taking with him Zudok a Pharisee, became zealous to draw them to a to a revolt. Both said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery, and exhorted the nations to assert their liberty. And this bold attempt proceeded to the greatest height. Writes Josephus in his book, Book eighteen, Chapter eighteen of of uh, the antiquity of the Jews. Those who followed Judas of Galilee were called zealots. And even after Judas was killed, they continued on and refused to pay taxes to Rome and took an oath to fight Roman oppression, even to death. Publicans and zealots were at the far opposite end of the political spectrum, and the flashpoint was the taxes. Publicans collecting them, zealots resisting them. They hated each other. This is a list of the disciples of Jesus. Most often when we think of the 12, we think of the fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John. But among the 12 was a publican, tax collector, Matthew. And among the 12 was a zealot, Simon. Matthew's life was all about money, collecting money, counting money, he probably was a subcontractor figuring out how he was going to pay for the territory and make a profit. Simon fought for liberty and refused any compromise. But Matthew would find true riches in Christ. Simon would find true freedom in Christ. And I can't help wondering, and it's conjecture, but hey, I can conjecture. When Jesus sent his two disciples out two by two, I can't help wondering if he paired up the publican and the zealot. Brought them together, not in compromise on common ground, but brought together on the higher ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part four, Quirinius and the birth of Jesus. Luke 2, 2 is really an interesting verse. There's a lot more there than meets the eye. The more you study it, the more impressed you are with Luke. Why this reference to Quirinius? And so what about Syria? And what about the reference of, the, of when this census to first took place? Augustus had been emperor for more than 20 years. It certainly was not the first census that Augustus ever had ordered. Well, Publicus, Epicuitus Quirinius was big stuff. To you and me, he's an obscure name in Luke chapter two, but in his day, he was a world famous figure. The first readers of Luke's account definitely knew who Quirinius was. He was a senator, then a council in Rome. He won won important military victories. He was given a triumph in Rome and and, and at his death in AD 21, he was given a state funeral. In the past few years, we have seen persons honored by lying in state in the US Capitol. Billy Graham, John McCain, George H.W. Bush, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's what we're talking about here. Augustus trusted him absolutely. Augustus moved him around to the most important assignments of the empire, one of which was being governor of Syria. The problem for historians was when? You see, the accounts of the birth of Christ reference two huge historical figures that we know a lot about. One is King Herod the Great in Matthew. The other is Quirinius in Luke. Now, Herod shows up in all the Christmas programs because Herod meets with the Magi who came looking for the king of the Jews. And we know a lot about Herod, and we know when he died. He died in 3 BC. So Jesus must have been born shortly before 3 BC. And for a long time, the archaeological record showed that Quirinius had been governor of Syria in what we call 6 or 7 AD or CE, as you prefer. Actually, Quirinius had been governor of Syria when Judas of Galilee started his tax revolt. And for centuries, critics of the Bible looked at this verse and charged that Luke had made a mistake. Yes, there was a census in the days when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And yes, there had been a tax revolt and everybody knew about that census. But that was in 6 AD. Herod had been dead for like 10 years. The stories didn't fit. And you can still read that reported today by some skeptics. But then, archaeology found that. They found the fragments of the burial of Quirinius where his resume and his accomplishments were written in marble and chiseled in. And in reading his bio, carved into his burial monument it said that corinius had governed syria twice once in version translates it. See, to you and me, Quirinius is an odd-sounding name, and the centuries lost in history, and nobody wants to talk about taxes, and the whole story sounds kind of misty and uncertain, but who cares because it's Christmas. But to the people who first read Luke's orderly account, they certainly knew who Quirinius was. And they certainly knew about these tax registrations. They had all been through tax registrations and they knew all about a tax revolt that occurred in Judah, in Judea in 6 AD or CE. So Luke points out expressly so that there'd be no confusion that this was the first time that Quirinius was governing Syria. It turns out there had indeed been a census and Quirinius had over seen it. And enrollment had started in Syria in 6 BC. And then after the enrollment was completed in Syria, it rolled down into Judea, who did not then have a governor because Herod was still king. And Quirinius ran it starting in 5, 6 or 5 BC. Historians quibble of it, but I think that Jesus is born in 4 BC. Herod meets the wise men just before his death in three, and Jesus would have been between one and two years old, hence the order of Herod to put to death all male children born in Bethlehem two two years of age and younger. History records that Herod at the end of his life was extremely paranoid and very focused on passing his kingdom to his sons, Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, and he was perfectly capable of ordering such an atrocity. It turns out, that Luke knew exactly what he was talking about. The precision with which Luke reported financial, historical detail has been documented over and over again through the centuries by the archeological and biblical scholars. In every instance where sufficient archeological evidence has surfaced, Luke has been vindicated as an accurate and meticulously precise writer it all come together just the way Luke had written it, from the decree of Augustus in Rome to the coordination by Quirinius in Syria, and you can take it from there, to Joseph leaving Nazareth, to Mary arriving in Bethlehem, to the days being completed for her to deliver her firstborn son. The story of the first Christmas, the purposes of God fulfilled with glad tidings of great joy that shall be to all people." Thank you so much for listening to me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I do, do we close in prayer, uh, or is there an end for the meeting? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Which has extended to all of the has extended to all of the world and has reached even us. We pray in this season, Father, that you are, that we would be renewed, in in the um, in the love and the purpose, and the grace of your Son, that would we would rejoice daily in Him, and as we wait for Him to come, wait for our Savior to come from heaven. Father, we pray for an open door for the preaching of the gospel. We pray for an open door in this Christmas season um, in, in New Jersey and in Maryland, in churches wherever the gospel was sounded. We pray for unity of Christians in their proclamation of the gospel and their love for one another. We pray in all things that his name would be glorified. We give thanks for, for him, as we remember him today and pray in his name, amen.